Well, anyway, um, I remember it made me think a little bit about when I was in middle school. Um, I have this very distinct interaction, this memory that's been, I have, probably have a handful of memories about middle school. I don't know if you can go back that far. But there's one memory that really has seared itself into my mind. And I was, uh, I was on the bus. I was in seventh grade. I was on the after-school bus. And I was sitting uh, halfway down the right-hand side of the, the yellow school bus in the, one of those brown chairs. You know what I'm talking about, the, the old school bus. Minding my own business. When um, this, this kid, who's an eight, who was an eighth grader at the time, named Harry, he came up and just slapped me. It seemed like as hard as he could in the back of the head. And it like jerked my head forward a little bit. And I was like whoa, what was that? Like, I had no reason. I, I felt like retaliating at the moment. I was like, you know, whatever. I'm not going to do anything about that. I'm just going to let it go. I'm not going to pick a fight here. I could have just got up and stormed the castle, so to speak, but I just decided to let it go and just kind of ignore it. Nothing really much came of that uh, later. So fast forward four years later, no, five years later, it was my senior year, uh, me and Harry were on the homecoming court together, and uh, we got we had known each other a little bit and had not too many interactions, but we really hit it off, and we became actually pretty good friends. Uh, I actually just saw him at my high school reunion. I remember um, I actually happened to win homecoming king that year, and he was very congratulatory of me. I actually, one of the most genuine, loving responses, like, hey, man, I'm so supportive of you. Love you, brother, and... Um, but this time, so I saw him just weeks ago uh, at my high school, my 25th high school reunion. And this time it was me congratulating him because he had won, he he gotten inducted to the Pennsylvania Sports Hall of Fame, fame for, for, for what? For being a professional boxer. So I'll tell you this way. I am really glad I did not... <laughs> try to slap him back or retaliate. That seemed to be one of the best moves of my life. Not only did I not get turned into a human punching bag, but I ended up having a friend as a result. And so I get to see him actually around town here and there. I don't know if he lives in the neighborhood, but he's, he's around. Um, but, you know, he was actually featured in ESPN, you know, with his big fight, so kind of thing. So you could even look him up. But I am certainly glad that my f friend Harry is a friend of mine. Um, and really, it was a really situation there. A potential enemy became a, a good buddy. And it's, um, it's fun to look back on that and realize that I had some wisdom, at least some kind of wisdom, uh, not to respond as I, as I really wanted to. But anyway, we're, what we're doing is we're talking about relationships. And this is our last in a series called Restoring Our Relationships. And the big idea is that if we invite Jesus into our relationships, he can bring restoration and healing into our lives. And I want to talk about really, I would say, the most difficult relationships of them all, um, and that would be loving our enemies, uh, loving the people who uh, we might consider to be enemies, whether you think you have enemies or not. So you might be sitting here, I was like, well, I don't really have a lot of enemies. I'm not in war. You know, no one, I don't think, hates me. You think you might be thinking, I'm a nice person. But what I mean by, but we can frame enemies a little bit differently. Enemies are people who, can who basically an enemy, if you look up the definition in the, in the dictionary, is someone who opposes you or shows hostility towards you. So using that definition, uh, like Michelle had kind of alluded to, even people in your own family can be these temporary enemies. 
anyone who you're in competition with, anyone at work who is opposing you or speaking ill against you. It could be um, a friend where there's a blow-up in the middle of, of a conversation that you have and they're very angry at you. In that moment, they're opposing you and what you represent. They, they could be considered an enemy. It could be someone uh, who has hurt you in the past who you don't have much connection with right now. It could be someone who is uh, serially hurting you in some way or another. Um, it could be someone who is hurting your children or someone you're angry at. It could be someone you disagree with politically, someone who represents a position, whether it be political, social, theological, that is, seems to be completely contrary to what you believe. So in some ways, we all encounter enemies in one way or another. And so I'd like to ask you this question as we frame, uh, look at God's word today and really look at what Jesus has to say, is who is your enemy? Or who do you think might be your enemy or feel is your enemy? I want you to hold that person today uh, before you as we, as we discuss and look at what Jesus has to say about it, which many of us has already heard. Who are those enemies in your life? Or maybe one person right now who's caused pain. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us and allow your voice to just permeate and break through all the other voices and feelings that we, we all of us so often have? Amen. All right, so let's look at the scripture. So we're going to be looking at some of the most famous teaching of all. So I'm, I would assume that many of us have heard of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in Matthew 5, but it really doesn't get much better than this. When you think about how to relate to people, particularly when it comes to people who are enemies, Jesus uh, sets the standard in Matthew 5 in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. All right, so let's read what he says here, uh, starting in verse 43. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends his reign on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so Jesus is speaking into a context that, where the dominating thought of the day was, if someone was not my neighbor, if someone was not my family member, if someone was not part of the Jewish community of Israel, then I had no obligation whatsoever to help them, to think of them, or to consider them, and particularly to love them. That would be outrageous. Um, and the, the, the people of the day, the, the leaders, the Pharisees, had added to the law this idea of hating your enemy, just like Jesus said. You have heard that it said, hate your enemy. That was added by the teachers of the law at the time. So it was a dominating thought. It's the way people lived. They hated their enemies, and they certainly had a lot of enemies. They were living in enemy-occupied territory. So the Roman... Uh, the Roman uh, Empire had been dominating and oppressing them for, for years, and they were living under that rule. So they knew exactly uh, what Jesus was talking about here. But what Jesus wanted to do was he wanted to clarify the implications for what it was to live differently, 
to live a life that is different in the kingdom of God and that his disciples were going to be distinctly different from everyone else, from all of the pagan nations, even from the dominating religious activity that had been happening, followers of Jesus, people who were living in the kingdom of God are distinctly different in the way that they love and treat other people, particularly their enemies. And he calls them out here. He says, like, even the pagans, right? So you've maybe seen the mafia movies. Maybe you're, you're Godfather. You know, they, the, the, the mafia Godfather, the, those guys, they love their own. They take care of their own, don't they? You know, uh, terrorists, uh, the ISIS, they have great health care for their community. They take care of their community. Jesus is making the point here. Listen, the pagan, people who don't have no relationship with God whatsoever, they take care of their families. They take care of themselves. They take care of their own. So you, as my followers, people living in the kingdom, there's a greater standard than just loving your own people. And in fact, one scholar put it this way, Jesus provokes his hearers to shame by using this illustration, saying that, in fact, you think you're taking your loving people when you've categorically dismissed whole categories of people because you think that you're supposed to hate these people instead of love them. And so there, he's, he's giving this uh, challenge in, in a new way, and we've heard this a lot of times. Love your I mean, it's one of Jesus' most famous teachings, in fact. However, in the ears of the hearers, we have to put ourselves in the position. This was utterly shocking and unbelievable to hear something like this, that the, the fact that you should love everybody was a new thing uh, for, for them, and Jesus was, was making that. And so it, we, similarly, might want to consider, do we actually love everybody as well? Do we love the people who present themselves with caustic, what we would consider caustic worldviews, or who are, are truly hurtful towards the ones we love. I think today, in today's age, you may have seen it, particularly within the social media realm, we've created these echo chambers where we reinforce our own ways of thinking and we shut out those who think differently. And you see the interactions. It's, okay, well, you think that, therefore, you're basically worthless and you should shut up. That's, that's the mentality, and it's kind of cyclical. And it's, I mean, it's festering all across the internet and in the lives of our society today. This is how we live. And so people cocoon themselves off into these little uh, groups where they can just be reinforced in what they own think and don't really have to uh, deal with people who think differently. And when they do, it certainly causes a lot of conflict, maybe at the Thanksgiving table. I mean, you might be going into a situation where there's a family member you're going to see on Thursday, if you're, if you're indeed having a Thanksgiving dinner, who basically directly opposes what you think and what, the way you act in your life, your lifestyle. And so there's, a, there's an opportunity there to love your, quote-unquote, temporary enemy, or enemy in the more generic sense. And in the framework of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to love. And it's not just, not just an action, not just something we decide to do in the moment, but in the framework of that whole sermon, what Jesus is, is preaching and teaching is that there's a righteousness that comes from the heart. He says, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that is a righteousness that comes from inside who you truly are, that you're not just a person who's acting following a new law. Jesus is not trying to create a new law and say you have to obey these new commands as much as he's saying this. He's saying, be the kind of person who loves enemies when they confront you, who loves people when they do things that uh, might be hurtful. 
And I think one of the most uh, penetrating, convicting things, Dallas Willard, he's one of my favorite teachers, that he said about uh, spiritual maturity is this, is that the true test, the true litmus test for spiritual maturity is whether we spontaneously love our enemies from our hearts or not. Think of that in terms of your level of maturity as a person. How do you respond spontaneously in your heart to those who are your enemies? People, whether on the outside or the who are close or far away or in between, what is your heart's response to being hurt? Is it spontaneous love for them? That's the challenge that Jesus gives us. That's the standard to which we are called. It's the love that he's talking about. We talked about last week. It's agape love. It's supernatural, giving, selfless. It's the kind of love that we see in the person of Jesus. It says here he causes his son, or maybe in the previous slide, he causes his son to rise on the unrighteous and righteous alike. It's called common grace. In other words, God, in his love, he gives common grace to all people, no matter how they act. If you're acting evil, if you're acting like a jerk, or you're acting like Mr. Nice, Mr. and Mrs. Nice Guy, he sends rain, he sends his, his love on those people as well. But there's also a saving grace that we see in the person of Jesus, don't we? We took communion today. What do we celebrate in communion? In that verse uh, I read earlier from uh, Romans 5, it says this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. While we had rejected God, while we uh, were participate, participants in our sin and what people did to Jesus, Jesus forgave us. And so Jesus, in the act of dying on the cross, he, he literally showed us what it meant to love our enemy. The Pharisees who basically arranged the whole situation, the religious folks, he loved the Pharisees by exposing the truth of their hypocrisy and by warning them of the judgment that was to come if they didn't repent from their sin. He loved the Roman guards, the centurions, who were nailing the nails into his hands as he was being hung on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what he do. He forgave those and prayed for those who were mocking him on the cross. And he loved even his disciples. As had he deserted him, he remained remain faithful. This is why we love. And if we forget why we would do this, and you would ask the question, certainly this is a question to ask, why would I think about that person? Why would I love that person? You might have that person in mind. Why would I even do that? The answer to why is because Jesus first loved us. It's, that's, that is the ultimate answer and the why behind the what of what Jesus is saying. We love others we love our enemies because Jesus did the same for us. And because Jesus poured out his love while we were his enemies, he expects his disciples and pours out his love into our hearts and gives us his spirit so that we can do the very impossible things that he's called us to do. And this is not uh, minimizing the pain that any of us here have experienced with our enemies. He is not minimizing the wrong. In fact, the cross itself, the picture of the cross shows simultaneously two things very clearly. How wrong sin is and how bad it is, how hurtful it is humanity. The death and what Jesus went through shows the severity and the consequences of sin. But simultaneously, it shows us that love, that divine love that God has for each and every person. Even the people who have hurt you the most, God loves them and died for them. And that's a thought that 
that has helped me when I've, when I've experienced some, some very difficulty loving some very difficult people is remembering that Jesus died for them as well. So how do we do that? You know, how do we, how do we kind of love like Jesus did? Well, Jesus says in this passage, there's, there's several things, but one of the main things he points at is he says to love and how do we love? Well, he immediately says to pray, to pray for those who persecute you. Um, I've been trying to build this habit of as soon as someone does something that's very hurtful to me, the, my first reaction is not to respond or to react, but to respond in prayer before I react to them. And sometimes this is very difficult, but this trains my heart. And as we pray, God actually transforms our hearts. And ultimately, it's in the loving presence of God that we become loving, the loving people of God. If we want to become a loving person, we need to be in the loving presence of God himself. And it's in prayer that we do that. Um, God does change our hearts. So uh, within this last year, many of you have heard, you know, I was dealing with a situation where not just one daughter, but both of our daughters were assaulted in ways that were completely inappropriate. And we'll get into the details there. But in that situation, I was faced with a choice of how I was going to respond. And in fact, I had, I had a chance, which I'll share with you in a moment, to spawn, respond in person to, to two of, these, um, two of these, these young boys. And I was dealing with a lot of anger. Uh, I mean, and I wanted, I wanted to do things. I wanted to follow my feelings. My feelings were, I wanted to take revenge. I wanted to take retribution. I wanted to take things into my own hands. But, but what I remembered was what Jesus said. And I said, okay, God, I don't feel like doing this, but I'm going to pray. And as I prayed, my posture and stance towards these boys uh, began to change. And even in my interactions with the, the superintendent uh, or the uh, principals and those who were involved in this situation, because this became a big thing, um, was actually different than when I had started. And thanks be to God, by the grace of God, I've seen that transformation in process. Now, certainly it hasn't been easy and I'm still working through some of those things. Uh, but in the process, I can, I can stand here and tell you that in the process of prayer, God has shifted and changed my heart in that situation. You know, as God changes our hearts, we can actually love our enemies. And there's an important point that Jesus makes right before he talks about this. And I want to go back to a, one of the points I just made. But he gives several examples of what loving our enemies is like. When we love our enemies, it does not, one thing Jesus does make clear, which is not immediately apparent, but if we look into what he's actually saying, is that loving our enemies doesn't mean like saying, oh, it's okay. It's not saying that the hurt that they have caused us or that they're doing to other people is right. In fact, loving our enemies, part of what loving our enemies looks like is exposing sin for what it is. Now, I want to give you two examples that you're probably, you've probably heard. Um, and he, he talks about that in the verses right before this. I want to give you a couple examples. So you've heard this one about getting slapped uh, on the uh, right cheek. So if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. So um, one thing you might not understand, if you're, if you're slapped on the right cheek, um, would someone like to come up here and get um, pretend slapped? I'm not sure gonna, not going to slap you, but I just need to demonstrate something. Anyone? Ben? Oh, thanks, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ben is my son, and he knows, he trusts me, I'm not going to actually slap him. 
Okay, Ben, so just so we have the orientation right, can you point to your right cheek? Okay, that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying if you get slapped on your right cheek. Mm-hmm. Most people, and, and in this common day, you're right-handed. So he's, th- and this is actually what he, Jesus was saying. So if you right-handed slap someone, you actually would be slapping the left cheek. So the right cheek slap, which w- would be a backhanded slap, it would be a slap like this. And that slap, a right-handed slap, you can be a, you can be a good uh, non-slapped person and sit down. So okay. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Round of applause for, for Ben. Don't slap me, Mel. Uh, <laughs> so what Jesus was actually saying, so a right-handed to backhanded slap, do you know what that, that kind of slap is? I mean, you probably have seen it, but that's, that's the way uh, a superior or a slave master or someone who's assuming a, a posture of authority would slap someone who is inferior. So it was actually an abusive kind of slap that Jesus referred. So slap on the right cheek is a reference to Jesus saying what was happening there in the Roman culture, in their own culture itself, in the Jewish community, where slaves would be mistreated, where women would be slapped unnecessarily, where little children would be hit across the face. And so by turning the other cheek, it, it, it takes a whole new dimension when we understand what Jesus is saying. What you're doing is you're standing up to the person who just did that. Who, see the, so the, response, the expected response is one of two things. Either you retaliate and attack, or you cower in fear because you're being abused. That's the ex- expectation in that response. But if you stand and turn the other cheek, if you're saying, if you're turning the left, the other cheek, what you're saying is, no, the, if, I were to, if you were to slap someone like this, that's more of the way a peer slaps a peer. That's the way someone who actually has respect but is showing frustration will, will retaliate against someone. And so in, in receiving a left-cheeked slap, what you're doing is, number one, you're surprising them with a, an incredibly loving and courageous response. But you're also exposing them for the kind of uh, degradation and the kind of behavior that is inherent in their, in their own actions. And so it's actually a very courageous standing up to evil kind of response that we often get, get missed in our culture. We think we're trying to be, uh, you know, Jesus is like recommending cowardice or backing down, but that is not at all what Jesus is saying. So there's another example. I mean, there's like four examples. I just want to highlight two of them just so we get the right idea. If someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, uh, hand your coat as well. Remember, he's speaking to mostly poor folks, and um, the the rich would often oppress the poor, and their coat uh, is like the most valuable thing they had. They could use it to sleep. They would use it as a blanket at night. It was their most expensive garment. They usually only had one of them. They would wear the shirt underneath. And so if you took someone's coat, you'd basically be taking their, almost their entire life. It'd be like taking their car or something significant that they depended on. Um, so if someone wants to take your shirt, he's like, listen, hand over the coat. But what, what's ha- what the picture Jesus is painting that we don't hear, see is if you take your shirt and your coat, you basically have nothing on at that point. And so you would be, Jesus is what he's saying is just strip yourself naked and give them everything that you have, therefore exposing yourself to the other person and shaming them. And particularly in a shame-based culture, you would be bringing shame upon that person and demonstrating that to them the full extent of what their actions and the impact that they're having 
on you. In fact, it would, it would completely shame the person who is um, trying to take those things from you. And so there's a couple about walking. There's a couple more that Jesus uh, describes, but we'll just stop there. The point being is this, is that one of the ways that we love people is not by uh, acquiescing to evil. It's not by ignoring evil. It's not by saying that it's not evil. It's by exposing evil for what it is, by showing and demonstrating and explaining to the person who is the aggressor, who is actually in the wrong, but in a nonviolent, loving way, that what they are doing is actually wrong. That there is a third way, not just ignoring, not cowering, and not retaliating in violence and being just as evil, so to speak, or reciprocating in kind. There is another way, a higher standard, a kingdom way of responding to our enemies. Practically speaking, let's think about that person and maybe a conversation you have with that enemy in your life. Practically speaking, there are many implications, but one of the implications is, is that when we're attacked, maybe verbally, or we feel attacked verbally, emotionally, when someone does something that offends us, we typically, and I mentioned this before, either respond in one of two ways. We want to attack them back, or we want to withdraw our presence from their lives. And those are the two ways that people often respond to evils, either attack or withdrawal in relationships. But how about a third option? The third option um, would be to respond to that person by helping them see the consequences that their actions or behavior is having on you. So when you receive that attack, you can either attack them back and judge them and tell them what a jerk they are or what an idiot they are or what a fill in your favorite expletive in the blank they are, or you can explain to them the impact that their behavior has had on you and the people around them. So you're a parent. This works in parenting. This works in friendships. This works in marriage. It works as coworkers. You can say... Um, well, let me give you the real life example. So I encountered, um, you could, I think holding that, this is what I'm saying, but I'm going to illustrate it because of what happened. Um, you can explain the consequences of their action to them and yet still make your point without having to retaliate. So that one of those boys who was treating my daughter inappropriately was on my front lawn. Uh, have I told you, have I said this story before? No. I don't know. Okay. So he ended up on my front lawn uh, drinking a glass of water, like give your enemies a glass of water. So he was actually, I, one of my kids gave it to him. So they were already a step ahead of me in loving our enemies. And one of the other kids told me what these kids did. And I, I mean, when they told me, they were like, they're out there right now. You have to go outside. And so I got really, I mean, I got really angry in that moment. I was, gonna, I was about to storm outside. I stopped and I said, Lord, help me handle this in an appropriate way, have your way, Jesus. Some quick little, like, one of those breath prayers. <laughs> so I went outside, and there were these two kids sitting on the lawn drinking our water, God's water. <laughs> I wanted those, you know, those red Solo cups, like everybody. Okay, so I went out there, and, and in the moment, um, by God's grace, the first thing I did was I just asked them, clearly. I said, my daughter was up at the park, and she said that you touched her, you did this thing to her. Is that true? And you could see immediately in their eyes, like their eyes just got really wide. And one of the guys is like, well, I didn't do it. 
and he started kind of backing away slowly, like out of the, out of the yard. And the other kid was like, uh, um, he couldn't he couldn't speak. And then I explained to them, "You listen to me. Let me explain to you the way that your actions, the impact that's having on her, and that how that kind of that kind of behavior." is inappropriate not only against my daughter but against any girl that you interact with. And so I was giving them this little, little lecture. But they were, as I was giving them this talk, they were kind of slowly backing off. They didn't run away, but you could tell, I, I think I'd put the fear of God in them without having to do anything that, was, that could have ended up me doing something that would got me in trouble. And listen, dads out there, you probably know, if you have a daughter you probably know how I feel. If you're not, uh, to describe how a dad feels when their daughter is mistreated, it took a lot, (laughs) it took God's grace, let me say that, for me to respond in that way. But when we do that, when we actually put into practice what Jesus says to do, we accomplish so much more than we could do on our own. We only make things worse. If I were to respond the way I felt like responding, that situation would have been a lot worse and a lot more complicated than it could have ever been. And in fact, that situation got escalated and there were things that happened um, that uh, eliminated the threat, so to speak, in a way that didn't require me to have violent or aggressive or loud and obnoxious or any kind of behavior that would have um, gotten me in trouble myself. And it's the same way in each of our relationships. We can respond, we can we can explain to the person. So when you're hurt, you can say this. Say, see, someone said something that was hurtful or did something. You can say, this is the impact that it has on me. Did you know that what, when you did that, that this is, how, this is how it hurt me? And often we don't do that. We skip that step. Instead, we jump right to, you're the perpetrator. We jump, we jump to judgment, in other words. Because, and oftentimes we misunderstand the situation completely. You know, one of the things that um, Jesus talks about, which we'll get into in Matthew 7, I think is one of the key parts to having uh, humble and patient relationships and listening um, to others. I, I, in my observations, even within a tr- leading a church community in my previous place where I was a pastor, there is one mistake that I've seen more than any other relationship-wise. It's that the person who is offended makes assumptions about what the other person did and immediately attacks them without regard for the other person's perspective. Or what I've seen is someone comes, comes to you or succumbs, succumbs to somebody and tells them how they've been hurt by another person and they immediately take the person's side without having considered the perspective of the other person. Again and again and again and again, I've seen that just do so much damage to relationships. If the person, if in our relationships, we would just take time to listen to the, quote unquote, the other side, it would solve so many of the problems that we have to ask and explain what is your perspective on this situation. Listen, there's two, you've heard it, there's two sides to every story. In fact, There's usually more than two sides. There's usually many sides, many perspectives to every situation. I want to show you this proverb. It gets to the heart of it. Proverbs um, 5, or it should be Proverbs uh, 7, 18, 17. I forgot to fix the little um, subtext there. But anyway, uh, it says, As in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right 
until someone comes forward and cross-examines them. So in other words, think about a court, like in our relationships, think about in a courtroom, if only the prosecutor got to present their side of the case and then the defense didn't get to say anything. In other words, the jury was only presented with one side of the, the story of the case and the trial was decided upon that one perspective. Well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? But this is what we do again and again and again in relationships with one another. We jump to judgment without considering all the perspectives, without considering that there's a story, remember, that's being written that we are not aware of in our relationships with one another. This is how Jesus said it. Do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, the plank in our eye is judgment, and judgment impedes our vision. It's assuming that we see things clearly, but we really don't. We neglect to listen, to humbly listen, and to be patient to the other person's perspective in a conflict. We consider, or we neglect to consider the situation and instead put all uh, blame on a person. Um, Malcolm Gladwell once recommended a book. He writes about sociology called The Person and the Situation. I'd recommend that. I don't think it's by Malcolm Gladwell, but he references it and uses it in a lot of his writing. But it helps us understand that the, oftentimes there are situational factors we haven't considered, but we jump to conclude that it's all about what the person is doing and blame them uh, squarely without understanding the whole, um, the whole situation. I'll close with one illustration, then we'll be done. All right. And it has to do with right where I'm standing. So... Uh, and this came, again, uh, came to the forefront as I was meditating on this. This was several years ago. So we had just moved in here. We'd been here for a couple years. And every year, the, the Merc here, they seeming to want to raise the rent. That's the way it's seen. I guess that's what businesses do. They raise, they raise prices on people. And um, I got a call from them, from the Merc. And this is pre-COVID, so and saying that there's another church that was looking to rent this space. And so, that, so what they ended up doing is they ended up raising the rent for us like $1,000 a month, like, or presenting like $2,000, some, some huge jump in rent per month. And I found out that it was one of the churches that my friends had pastored. And, it, and everything, the way everything seemed is that this other church was trying to outbid us knowing that I had shared that we had loved this space, and they were trying to get this space instead of us, and that our rent had gone up. And in the end, they didn't get up taking it, but we ended up paying like a third amount more of the rent. So I was, I was feeling pretty hurt at that point. I was like, what is going on here? Would my friend, like, would he, this other church really do this? So instead of jumping to conclusions, uh, and maybe I should have picked up the phone right away at this point, but I, we delayed it. I got together with my friend, and I said, uh, let's call him uh, Jerry. I call my pretend people Jerry. Uh, Jerry, can you, here's what happened. Can you please explain this to me? And he kind of took a bite of his burger and took a big gulp, I remember. And Jerry said yes. And he understood that it was like 
an obviously upsetting thing to me, but then he went on to explain that one of the volunteers in the church was just calling different spaces in the area to look for a space that, that he had not, no one in the church leadership had even initiated. It was a volunteer who was going around looking for spaces and looking for options for spaces, and that's what was about it. And that, in fact, uh, they had found a different space, and that wasn't part of their agenda, and he knew that he would never try and do something like that. And so for me, that, to hear that was like, oh my goodness, thank you. And that built something in our relationship. And if I had responded with all those assumptions, and there were so many different things that made it seem like it was something that it wasn't, that relationship would, would not be today, I don't think. Unless maybe I needed to humble myself, eat some humble pie, and, and, and ask for forgiveness. Um, but in the end, he actually came here, told them how much he loves us, he loves his church, and they wanted nothing to do with the space, just to clear things up. And I have so much respect for that other pastor. And I am thankful to Jesus that he teaches us that there's a different way to do things and that his way is always the best. Now we're going to close up here. We're going to worship. And what I want you to do is I want you to invite, there's that person, maybe the Holy Spirit has a person on your heart. It could be a person who kind of goes in and out of eneminess in your life. It could be a permanent enemy. It could be someone. There's a someone in each of our lives that God's calling us to love who is difficult to love. I want us to hold that person before the Lord and give you some time just to pray for them, to pray for their blessing, and, and ask the Lord, Lord, what are you asking me to do in response to your word today? Okay, we'll do that, and then we'll finish uh, worshiping, and we'll give some words for, for prayer time.